Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. We are here in the studio today with the three of us, as usual, me, Melissa, me, Caleb, me, Bridger, and I am introing this episode because I got to pick the article. It's your article. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it is in my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. my, one of my favorite things to talk about. So we are reviewing an article by George A. Frazier, MD. Yes, you heard correctly. MD. MD. Yep. Mm-hmm. Doctor of Medicine. And the article is called The Dissociative Table Technique. A strategy for working with ego states and dissociative disorders and ego state therapy, mm-hmm. which is a very robust title, and I got super excited when I read it because oh, yeah. this uh, modality of therapy, ego state work, is something that we use at our agency all the time. It's baked mm-hmm. in. Yep. Yeah. Um, we teach it. We encourage it. We utilize it uh, personally because I do work with DID a lot. This is uh, one of my you know, main strategies for working with that population. But one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight as we review this article is the fact that we feel like it is applicable to almost all presentations. Yes. Um, particularly so dissociation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Any, yeah. Anywhere where there could be dissociation, this would be relevant. Mm-hmm. And uh, dissociation is everywhere because yes. human beings dissociate regularly. It's and we part need of to our, like just center in on that because that actually is a controversial topic is it yeah like it's not to us <laughs> yeah. because we talk yeah. this way all the time but i remember caleb when we were in graduate school mm. that it was like dissociation was a disorder right you don't yeah. dissociate yeah, yeah. unless you have this disorder yeah right? but it's a very extreme yeah presentation of a client where right. their eyes are glazed over they can't move their They're body catatonic essentially catatonic. Yeah. yeah or there's fugue they don't remember oh, yes. who they are and Dissociate they like yeah. run off and get yeah. married there's to somebody else for several of some yes, kind. Yeah. yes. Yeah. and that that is so far from the neurobiological truth mm-hmm. and so that's some of the distinction that we're going to make well mm-hmm. yeah are we going to make that right now well i think I think I want to get into the article a little bit because that's okay. going to become relevant as we're talking about yeah. um, some of the interventions that he really, really explicitly describes. So this article is a little bit different than the others that we've reviewed so far because it is exclusively focused on practice and intervention yes. mm-hmm. rather than on theory. In fact, I would venture to say it's a little light on theory. Like yeah. I wish there was It more. assumes yeah. a lot. Yeah, it it does, does assume a lot. And one of the things that I think is really relevant to state right off the bat is that this article is from 1991. Yeah. A long time ago. Mm-hmm. A very long time ago in the world of research. A Especially lot, in trauma. Yeah, a lot has happened <laughs> since mm-hmm. 91. So, um, you know, if you do get a chance to read this article, one of the things that you're going to notice right away is that it's so old that they still call it multiple personality disorder. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is MPD. before MPD. Um, before the, uh, the We don't switch, call it that anymore. Yeah, to dissociative identity disorder. Um, because at the time it wasn't even fully recognized that the multiple personalities were actually simply a function. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say simply, 
but <laughs> a very elaborate function of the human nervous system's response to trauma yes. through the very natural and normal dissociative mechanism that is built into every human yep. nervous system. It's a strategy, yeah. just like many other things. Yeah, and so uh, you know what, what you'll hear us talk about tonight is that we're going to take the concepts that he presents and the interventions that he presents and then add some updates. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and some pretty significant updates from the world of neurobiology. Yeah. And yes. just our yeah. natural flair yeah. that we bring to every yeah. kind of Yes, our personal article. opinions. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and how well informed. Yeah. Well informed yeah. personal opinions. Yes. Yeah. Well informed. Yeah. And how it applies to our practice, how we see yeah. it yes. develop and yeah. work itself out. Yeah. yeah. So just as a beginning point, before we kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of the interventions that he outlines, I kind of wanted to start with that question of, um, you know, what is the, the main neurobiological update that we want to mm. give to what he is talking about in terms mm. of dissociation and MPD turning into DID and where we are, we, where we are in our theoretical understanding of what's actually going on in a human being when something as extraordinary and sophisticated as DID presents. So yeah. I'm going to punt to you, Caleb, yeah. and say, hey. Come on. Yeah, because I, I <laughs> had it. this, while I was reading the article, I had this um, experience like somatically where I was getting jacked, but I knew that there are probably people who would interpret these interventions as um, fluffy or creative or maybe just lacking theoretical underpinning mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and and research guidance and they're yeah. just kind of like oh these people did these things that seem to work and mm-hmm. so they write about it right um so and the client feel good so we should probably yeah. keep doing that yeah. Yeah. seem to be effective yeah yeah so i was just then I, then the passionate part of me stirred and i said <laughs> why do i do these things and why do i get so jacked on them yeah and, let's talk about it yeah and so the first thing that came to mind was uh, this field of neuroscience research called state-dependent memory. Yes. And uh, we'll link some articles in uh, the show notes and, and talk about that a little bit more. But one of the things is Bessel van der Kolk in a 2002 article uh, did like a brief synthesis where he talked about through the hyperarousal of traumatic stress, yeah. the brain sort of fragments in, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, we talked about it with uh, last week with Perry, where memory is implanted in these specific ways. Yes. And not always Very integrated. purposefully. Yeah. Not always integrated with the other parts. Right. Mm-hmm. Of memory, which yeah. is interesting that I use that word. Yes. Parts. <laughs> parts. Um, That's an ego state pun. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'll use it a million also, times. Also neuroscience pun. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this, um, these memories that are accessible only through... Um, reactivating the state yes. in which they were formed. So the, in the state-dependent memory sort of yeah. field of research, one of the things they talk about is long-term p- potentiation mm-hmm. and memory reconsolidation and utilizing the different parts of memory, whether it's in the body or if it's subcortical mm-hmm. or even neocortical, yeah, autobiographical, tapping into these parts of memory and, and reactivating them and then comes the act the associations with yes. the parts that under normal non-stressed st- states the person can't easily recall yeah they're sort of am- amnesia am- amnesic mm-hmm. they're yeah they call it dissociative amnesia mm-hmm. yes and i caleb this is getting into a little bit of a personal uh i think like um a personal tiff that you and i both take with mm. this confusion between dissociate and disassociate Mm. 
Wait, there's a difference? Yes, there there's is. There's a major difference. And this oh. conversation is going to point that out real hard. And we <laughs> yeah. need to be really careful with the term. So mm-hmm. dissociate and disassociate are very different things. Mm-hmm. But especially in the science of memory reconsolidation, it becomes really, really relevant to know the difference between yes. the two terms. Yes, mm-hmm. it does. Um, whenever a memory is activated, which the state is what is going to activate that memory, Uh, That can happen just because of a triggering experience, like it wasn't something that was planned, it just kind of sprung on you. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it can be intentionally evoked through a therapeutic encounter where the science of memory reconsolidation can associate that to adaptive memory networks. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if we need need to go in deeper on any of that. Probably a little bit. Go like one more layer. Yeah, so like talk specifically about adaptive memory Mm -hmm. networks. Right, so... In adaptive memory networks, we're able to understand. Uh, I'm trying to do this simply. There's so well, many. So I've got a version trails. of this for you. Okay, so. okay, okay, go for it. <clears throat> so this comes from trying to teach a whole lot of people uh, about EMDR. Oh yeah. Right, because it's super relevant. Information and the, processing yes, systems, yes, memory so networks. So the theoretical foundation of EMDR is adaptive information processing. Yeah. And what they're getting at, and the way that we conceptualize what adaptive means in that context is that our adaptive memories are are fully or mostly integrated into our autobiographical self. Mm-hmm. So, I know this is a part of yeah, me. Yeah, this is a part of me. I feel like I understand it. I'm accepting of it. Yeah. Um, and even, even in the negative experiences, the painful experiences, there was something that got connected to that memory that allowed it to be fully integrated and actually become post-traumatic Growth. growth yes and so that's a really important nuance is that with maladaptive memories that are not integrated into the autobiograph autobiographical self um those memories are the ones that tend to cause us problems yes this is why not everybody that goes through something traumatic develops all of the symptoms of ptsd yeah because if there was a adaptive factor that was present at the time of the trauma it allows for that integration and a lot of that is about attunement yes within a within a traumatic experience yeah. that you had somebody there that was helping you hold your world mm-hmm. together yeah. essentially yeah. yeah 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 and one of the things this is like a mini soapbox that i was thinking mm-hmm. about in relation to this article because what your what the listeners are going to hear are very anthropomorphized ways yeah, personified talking. ways yeah mm-hmm. and and it's it's very narrative in its construction yeah which and is what i think attributes a lot of the fluffy yeah it, uh, it feels connotation well, this is like are you and, yeah yeah talking about like little people in my brain what are you <laughs> yeah, talking yeah, about totally yeah but, but like yes. <laughs> yeah so just the role of story yeah in the brain and in just human life in general it it has such an integrative uh, capability yes because you're getting the sensed memory you're getting the motor vestibular memory yeah as yes. you image that person yes anthropomorphize that, that part state, or that yeah, yeah in your head mm-hmm. and not only that but you get some distance yeah it and normalizes so, and, yes exactly yeah. desensitizes yeah. yeah and so you have this ability to reactivate mm-hmm. these memory networks yeah that are different they're not all cognitive yes and you get to talk about them and process through them yes in a way that if you're going pure cognitive you metacognition, have no way of talking about no them. way yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so you have to activate these creative curious right hemispheric embodiment yes. based and that is where fraser i think got just so much right mm-hmm. before yeah. we understood why oh yeah mm-hmm. um 
this framework gives the opportunity to personify those disassociated parts mm. right. um, where you couldn't access them through your cognitive faculties. Yeah. You don't know that this part of you is holding these memories out of your conscious awareness. Not not because of resistance no. or unwillingness, but no. but literally there is not a neuron connecting to autobiographical yes, self. Yes, to to you know from that state. Yeah. That experience, the memory that is associated with that state and you know referencing back to the article that we talked about in the last episode yeah. that you know our our different understanding of memory is literally held in our cells and in our nervous system in yeah. a very um profound way and so when that state is activated yeah. then I suddenly have access to the memory right. of that state. Yes. Yeah. And that is Man. that is exactly what you know Fraser was talking about. I think one of the major updates that we have to what Fraser did and to some degree he did it intuitively he did yeah. it experientially he was uh, he and many other people that were kind of right in the midst of trying to figure out like oh dear god how do we treat this mm -hmm. this presentation um as you know many therapists do you figure out what works and you don't necessarily always know why it works but you keep doing it because you see the, the results of it working yes well now we have so much more neurobiological understanding to say oh this is why that's why. And one of the ways that I explain it to people, it, this is also actually how I explain it to clients. Because back to your point, Caleb, one of the responses that we get when we first introduce this idea of ego state work to what? someone with DID or somebody that doesn't yeah. have DID but has elements of dissociation in their presentation is they're worried that we're going to give them DID. This mm. is a point. I'm so glad you brought that up. And, he, and Fraser addresses he this, yeah. uh, which is fascinating that in 1991, and I mm -hmm. think it's because of the language that they used, which was iatrogenically, yeah. yes. which is just an unhelpful MD word yes. uh, to talk about. Which means, the ways, go ahead and define it, yeah. Iatrogenically means that it can be given to you by another, right. essentially. Contagious. Just, just yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> just the idea that, Caleb, I would say to you, you have parts of yourself that that would somehow spin yeah. off into yeah. I created parts. I created a fragmented memory in you. Yeah. Um, and that was a really hot button issue, especially in the medical world when it came to understanding fragmented ego states. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that specifically has to do with understanding an alter as a symptom. Yes. An alter as a problematic presentation as if we did, if we didn't have alters that this would somehow fix the problem. Yeah. And that has to do with a lack of understanding of what uh, DID actually was. And so part of the, the evolution is understanding that when somebody presents with multiple personalities and dissociative identities, these are the most adaptive aspects of how they learn to survive what they went through. Yes. The, the amount of trauma that is required to develop what we would consider full-blown end-of-the-spectrum DID from my experience, these people have the kinds of trauma that either they make movies about or nobody believes it when they tell their story. Yeah. yeah. It is so atrocious. It is almost always early, early in life. Yeah. So starting, you know, severe, the worst kinds of abuse that you can imagine starting at three, four or five years old. And it's systematic. It's often ritualized. It's yeah. often, often violent. Yes. Um, like gruesomely violent. And yeah. so the amount of trauma that is required to get somebody to that end of the spectrum is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, one of our, well, actually one of our great shared between the three of us mentors, uh, I don't I think we should say her name. <laughs> no, let's not. Yeah. One of let's our not. our old shared yes. professors. Yes. yes. Um, I, I remember the first day that she drew the human pie. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And started. Uh, you know, she said we come into life like this, which was yes. like a circle, 
and we'll have experiences that come along and they cut off a piece of us. See, when I was in school, she used a loaf of bread. Oh, And she nice. brought in an actual loaf of bread. Oh, a my whole, goodness. A whole loaf of bread. And then she got out a big old bread knife and said, here's what trauma does. And oh. she started slicing. What a powerful. And she, I know. And, and the, the question she asked while we all stared at the sliced loaf of bread was, is it still a loaf of bread? Oh. And we all Dude. said, yes. And she said, can it ever be the yeah. way it was before? And we all said, no. Yeah. And then we all just sat and thought, I hope that you're going to tell us more because I don't know what to do with that at this yeah. point in my career. Mm-hmm. And she did. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's that's all super relevant. Yes. But I'm so glad that you brought that up that uh, he just addresses it in the somewhat of the introduction, the first kind of meteor part of the mm-hmm. the article that he, he just says, dissociated states cannot be created iatrogenically, mm-hmm. which is his way of saying yeah. you can't just be given So I want to nuance dissociated that. states. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> so here's the thing that I have experienced both personally, professionally, and many, many times. You can intentionally create an aspect of self and you can do it therapeutically. Hmm. In fact, I recommend it. Well, yeah. And yes. we're, we're going to get more into that. We, we are. Yeah. And so I don't actually agree with his sort of blanket statement that you cannot do this. What you cannot do is create a, a alter state of personality that is so dissociated away from the autobiographical self that I do not have awareness of that other part. I'm out of control. Yes. Um, and as we move through the healing process with somebody with a severe dissociative um, presentation, introducing adaptive parts of self that were not part it's of the, so the system before, amazing. it's essential. Yes. It's absolutely essential. Yeah, that also reminds me of another... Uh, classmate in graduate school that uh, called it Sybil syndrome. Sybil syndrome. You can give someone Sybil syndrome. Okay. This guy was a proponent of the iatrogenic fear. Yes. That you shouldn't talk about parts because it's going to give somebody. Right. Yeah. And, and what, what Frazier and his research did point to is that that is impossible. Yes. Yeah. It is not impossible to intentionally create a aspect of your personality yeah. that can step in as an internal resource to aid in our healing process and aid in our overall self-care yeah. and self-parenting ongoing. What we can't do is create an alter personality that they don't have awareness of. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Can I, I don't I'll give some more neurobiological precedents yes, for this. Yes, please. <laughs> because um, somebody we will talk about later, Pongsep, oh, yeah. um, has the seven affective circuits. Mm-hmm. Those are There's a primary function to that. Those are all subcortical, very deep. Yeah, think in the brainstem back of the brain. Yeah. Brainstem back of the brain, and they yeah. work their way up. Yes. And they're focused primarily on behavioral activation. Well, his work coincides really well with Beatrice Beebe's work, oh. where she talks about Come on, early in development the reflection of emotions Mm -hmm. and the absence thereof relates to how uh, the child's brain develops and is able to express emotions later in life. Yes. And so say the practical implication of that. So what you guys are talking about, about bringing that resourced part is at times I will notice that a client has no play. Mm. They have no part of them that, which is an affective circuit, which is very, um, oriented towards social learning. Yeah, and it's very pure. It's focused on yeah. interacting. It's and a positive aspect. It's very state. adaptive. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what I will suggest is to the client. Yeah. Okay. Is to sort of, and I will bring into the inner subjective space. Yeah. My own sort of playful wondering. Yes. Because I want to reflect that almost like a parent would to a right. small child, mm-hmm. giving them permission and how to. Yeah. And so, in, in a way, I am 
I'm bringing that up. But also what I'm doing is I'm calling out the biological structures that are there. The realities. In a very anthropomorphized, creative way. Yes. And it, it has a very theoretical ground to that. Yeah. So one of the techniques that he specifically describes and and scripts, like literally provides a script for it, which is exactly what you're talking about, Caleb, is what he calls the memory protection technique. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love and, this. And, you know, when I read this, I'm like, oh, we do this in EMDR. We just call it the nurturer or protective yes, figure absolutely. Or, or the internal self-parent, but it's identical. So it's on page 211, guys. Yeah. Um, bottom left paragraph. You're jumping way ahead. I know, but it's so relevant to right mm. here. So just to give you guys an idea of exactly what does this sound like in a really practical sense, like yeah. literally what might we say in a session? This is how Frazier specifically describes it. So this is him saying exactly what he would potentially say to a client. It seems that the little child in that scene is very frightened and lonely. Why don't you get up from the table, walk right into that screen, Mm. and hug and nurture that child. Tell her that she is not bad, and soon she will be safe with you. One could go on and say, as the therapist, perhaps there is something you may wish to say to the adult who is hurting that child. Use that all the time. I know. Mm -hmm. Let's go into that scene, and I'll back you up as you let him know what you think of what he is doing. Yeah. Whoa. There's that, yeah. Whoa. Dude, it's, the it's activated. It yes. Oh, it's yes. so rich. Yes, yes, absolutely. Those states are activated and re- memory consolidation mm-hmm. is absolutely possible. Yeah. And the way Fraser talks about it yeah. is introducing a consolidating experience. Yeah. Yes. Those are two disintegrated circuits of memory right. and behavioral yes. activation yes so so circling back around to that point about adaptive memory right yes. so so an oh, yeah, adaptive that's how we got here. yes yes <laughs> so an adaptive part of my yes. uh, autobiographical self will include you know just me as a personal example i'm a mom i have a three-year-old little girl right so i have this part of self that is totally integrated yeah totally positive that mama is my self. mama me yeah. right like this is me embodying what it means to mother, to feel protective, to feel nurturing, to be willing to, you know, do whatever I need to do to protect my kid. Yeah. So if I was in therapy and I was processing something from, say, when I was four years old mm. of, you know, being in danger, of being frightened or being alone, and somebody says this to me, and if I'm struggling with it, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And they simply said, what would it feel like for the part of you that mothers your daughter? That's perfect. Yeah. To mm-hmm. step into that scene yeah. with you as the four-year-old whoa so because you know you've got templates for that yeah yeah so so what caleb is saying is that in that moment the state of mother yes awakens deep in my brainstem Mm -hmm. yeah my nurture care circuit which is one of our seven affective circuits turns on Mm -hmm. and says oh you know how to mother oh i got it yeah yeah you know exactly what to do feel that mama bear instinct rise up in your body yes that state of activation is fully alive fully present and now step into that scene Mm -hmm. with your four-year-old self and just be how would you be and how would how would i be with my nurture care circuit turned on which previously was not which was not and so that that is the integration moment yes i have you know the four-year-old self is fully embodying the state of fear and anxiety in in the circuitry of my brainstem right so this part of self is fully connected to to the state of fear and anxiety and it has been separate and disintegrated dissociated away from the rest of me away from my adult self and now suddenly in that therapeutic encounter here i am activating nurture care 
at the same time that fear and anxiety is activated. And my brain has this moment where it says, wait a second, these two things can fire at the same time. And now new neurons start to wire together and wait, I can feel nurture care and protective. I have that ability. And this memory now feels completely different. Totally different. different. Mm -hmm. So here's what Frazier says after he goes through that little script. I love this like totally underwhelming little comment that he makes. You ready for this? (laughs) So, you know, he makes that same as, I'll back you up as you let him know, your abuser, what you think of what he is doing. So he says that and then he says, this often has a very positive effect. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you think? Yeah. No, oh, this, this yeah. is the moment where somebody's life changes. Yes. Mm-hmm. This often has a very positive effect yes. of I am never the same again this after is, yeah. this yeah. moment. It's absolutely crazy. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so I, I just, I loved that he included in this article scripts, like literally the words that he shares. And he had no idea. Now, I don't know, maybe he knew about Ponksep. I have no idea. Um, I don't think so. But I think that, you know, what he was intuiting is that in sitting in the room with people and watching these states of activation show up in the form of altered states of personality, he had to figure out what do I do with all of this? Mm -hmm. And if he could activate a mother circuit, the nurture care circuit, why would we not utilize well, that I think to it, take care of the the fear of the child? Yeah, and it just goes so much to. I mean, there's so many analogies that mm-hmm. can be used or metaphors of missing ingredients. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what needed to happen in that mm-hmm. moment, mm-hmm. and why it was so terrifying for that. You know, continuing with that four year old uh, memory example, yeah. that four year old was completely unprepared to handle right. that trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do we do? We don't try to, you know, question why the four-year-old responded the way they did or try to fix no. it. We add to them yes. resources that they didn't have. Yeah. And I, I would just like to point out, like, that we're talking kind of creatively, but, like, you are literally changing structures yes. in the brain. the brain. Yes. So, like, again, I want to, like, always I don't understand this, like, the... fluffy critique that comes to this well, because I think, it's... I think it happens because we, as therapists, don't actually conceptualize what we're doing neurobiologically. Well, that's we, we forget yeah. the whole point of this podcast. Well, that's, so. that's true. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad we get to talk about it in this context. Yeah. But I think when we add that layer of understanding that any conversation that we're having with someone has the potential to activate their affective circuitry deep in their brainstem where trauma is housed, where the memory is actually held. Yeah. And that is actually necessary for trauma resolution. Yeah. Necessary. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because you're providing the mismatched experience right. for the state that allows it to shift and then Well, and you can't release what is held in the memory of the affective circuitry without activating it. Yep. Yeah, that's that could be the end of the podcast. <laughs> We're not even halfway done. So yeah. I'll come back to it. Yeah. But <laughs> that, that point is so, so yes. relevant. Yeah. And that to me justifies why we're talking about this on evidence-based therapists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want this to come across as overly heady or something like that of this intellectual exercise. What Mel just said is the basis of trauma processing yeah. therapy. Yeah. Yeah. If you do not activate the affective circuitry you are not working with the real memory you are working with, with the, the story co- yes you're working with the cognitive story that they told themselves after the fact to make sense why, of what yes. they felt about and that's why you. somebody can tell you a detailed account of yes. what mm-hmm. happened with no affective presentation mm-hmm. yes. no emotion and they don't get better and by they don't way, get better yeah. just by saying so by the way what we are describing right now is a difference between really crappy narrative therapy and effective narrative oh, therapy. No. I know. You came around I and you did. said there's an effective. Well, there That's is. That's amazing. If, For those that if, are listening right now, this is a growth moment for <laughs> Melissa. 
she has railed on us, <clears throat> particularly on you, Caleb. So I'm wondering how you're experiencing that. No, I'm just railed. <laughs> that's a bit much. Maybe I just said you hated narrative therapy. Bad. Yes. I specifically said I don't like bad narrative therapy and I actually think it does more damage, which I still agree. It does. I, I would I still, say so. Without but in affective activation. Yes. Yes. Anchored narrative therapy in mm-hmm. the body yes. oh. is Caleb, get it. therapy. Caleb, come on. Are you going to write yeah. that paper? I, I think anchored I might. Anchored narrative, narrative therapy. therapy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Body anchored narrative therapy. Yeah. That would make a difference. All right. We got to yes. zoom back. Okay. We got to <laughs> zoom back in. Okay. We were way out somewhere so else. So all of that, uh, what I want to do is just maybe summarize all that we're saying there yeah as when we start talking about these interventions like we are not in any way divorced from the reality that all of this has very neurobiological precedence Mm -hmm. firm and there's a there's a reason that this works Mm -hmm. and neuroscience is is constantly discovering that and giving nuance to it and it's there and we'll we'll link some of the articles that i found and but it's, it's out there. And I would actually say that based on the neurobiology that we're aware of and that we're you know processing all of the time and sharing on this podcast is that this kind of therapy with that theoretical understanding of the underlying neurobiology is more effective than mm-hmm. cognitive therapies at resolving trauma. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. Because Empirically. Even, yeah, because even, even when sometimes it feels like that sort of fluffy, creative, ooey, gooey version of therapy, which I don't know why we don't like that. Like warm, fuzzy that stuff feels warm and fuzzy. Delicious. <laughs> it involves a sort of embodiment from the therapist. Well, it does. It requires. It, it, yeah. 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 You and cannot it, fake it. No. Yeah. And yeah. If, we're, if we're uncomfortable doing embodied work for our own personal reasons, yeah. um, then I understand that. And yeah. cognitive therapy is very appealing in that spot. Except cogn- cognitive therapy is ineffective at treating certain presentations, and this happens to be one of them. And we're describing the neurobiology of why cognitive therapy yes. is ineffective at treating uh, dissociation and treating any presentation where dissociation is a large aspect of what's going on. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I have a question that I think will reorient us back to the place we are in the article, which is on the first page still. And it's 29 well, minutes we've, in. You know, but it's okay. We've jumped around. I've shared some really relevant stuff from later in the article. Yes, you I'm have. just saying. It's amazing. So <laughs> this is a really powerful question that I actually wanted us to spend some time talking about. Okay. Within the... Uh, kind of empirical or literary world of MPD research or DID research Mm -hmm. or ego state research, Mm -hmm. there's this word, alter. Oh, yeah. And I want us to spend some time talking about that neurobiologically, intersubjectively, even Mm -hmm. transpersonally. Mm -hmm. What do we mean when we talk about alters? What are those? Mm -hmm. Because he goes on to, you know, this is one of the ways that he just kind of assumes a lot of theoretical understanding uh, in the in the article, but he talks about these fragmented parts as mm-hmm. alters, mm-hmm. which is a very uh, deliberate choice of language. And I want us to just give some time to that. He he does list options yeah. and suggests that clinicians use the word of their own preference. And I what, would, the client, what the client, yeah, yes, uses, I, yeah, and yeah. that's what I was going to say. I would go a step further and say, you know, use the words that your client is comfortable with yes. because that's a big deal. I don't ever use alter. I don't no. even say that word. No. I think it, it has parts. Yeah, I it think feels it has a negative connotation to I, it. I also feel like it's connected to the, the old diagnosis of MPD. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. alternate mm-hmm. yes. personalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it may not seem relevant to you guys to, mm-hmm. to talk more about what that language is actually communicating, but I want us to make sure we connect with alters to to our understanding are is taking it to a pathological level yes 
that I don't think is helpful. It's based on a disease model mm-hmm. of yes. this uh, symptom presentation. Yes, yeah. that you have almost malignant alters mm-hmm. that can come forward and take you away. Yeah, he actually, he even he even talks about violent alters, yeah. which, yeah. you know, I would just say, for those of us that do a lot of work with dissociation, that is incredibly rare. Yeah. Like, beyond rare. Especially unresponsive violence, which I feel yes. like is what is feared in a lot of that, that there you will have an alter takeover that is unconsolable, right. completely violent without right. any concern of moral or ethical right. danger. What I what I actually think probably happened in the early research of this was number one, we were only diagnosing cases that were so severe right. that they did have that particular presentation because there are, you know, at that like I said, at the very end of the spectrum, there are versions of that. Yeah. The other thing is is that most uh most people that present with a diagnosis of DID or get diagnosed in the course of treatment, they themselves fear certain yes. aspects of their personality mm-hmm. and believe them to be capable of violence. So as the therapist, they will actually tell you, no, you can't talk to that part because I don't trust them to talk to you. Yeah. I, they might hurt you. Yes. Right? Which they probably have to other people, but not in like... Possibly. Yeah. Or it's them internalizing their perpetrator's well, yeah. shame and the reactions and to yeah, that yes. part of themselves. Yeah, yeah when so that part has come up. That's right. Or or if somebody is violently assaulting me and in response I am violent in return in self-defense yeah. and then afterwards the story is told that I'm out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm, you know, this insane um, violent child that, it, you know, we had to beat you because you were too yeah. out of control. Like that is well, verbatim is a story that gets told a when lot. When we have story that gets wrapped around these state uh, dependent memories, mm-hmm. we run into a lot of problems That's right. down mm-hmm. the road. That's right. Because when, just as we said, these memories are stored deep in the brain. And so when we're working on them in therapy, we're getting the story. Mm-hmm of what it is if they have conscious awareness of it so that means that the story that was wrapped around that disintegrated uh state dependent memory is one of violence Mm -hmm. and of unconsolable anger right so what story are you going to get you're going to get one of violence and unconsolable anger that is unpredictable and will just explode and you've been told your entire life that your response was disproportionate and to reality. Inappropriate. Yeah. And they don't have a way of challenging that story because their memories are so fragmented that they cannot. No. And especially when the person who's addressing them with that critique is so certain mm-hmm. of this is how you should feel about right. that part of yourself. Right. You should feel ashamed and right. afraid yeah. because you're so inappropriate. Yeah. In all of my like lived practical experience with these presentations, when we encounter a violent part, um, which is fascinating to me the names that get yes. <laughs> connected um so just a few fun examples uh one that i'm currently work- working with uh she calls her the princess of darkness oh yes <laughs> it's super oh fun. yes um another one uh she referred to as angel Mm-hmm. fascinating um yeah so there there's this you know connection to these parts of self as wait are you good or are you bad? Mm-hmm. Like, are you, you know, in one yeah. case we have royalty and the other we have angelic, you know, yes. and so they're, they're calling the, these things because subconsciously that's a rabbit trail. Subconsciously yeah. they know, they know that it served a very, you know, protective function, but they don't have the story to explain it. And all they have is the fear of what yeah, happens. It's reverie yes. mi- yeah, mixed yeah. with fear. Yeah. And yes. not to go back to being that person that brings it back to neurobiology Please again, do. but you should. Perry's used, used dependent. Yes. Like it, it's, it makes so much sense then that 
um, they may have trouble bringing those parts up because yeah. it doesn't seem useful yes. in that moment. That's episode yeah. two for the listener. Yeah, mm-hmm. episode two. And Mistake. also the idea that you wouldn't have a part unless there was a use for it. Dude, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And that goes to the adaptive nature of the development of right. this yeah. of this presentation it was for a reason okay so another thing that i wanted to bring up about you know your comment about how do we feel about this word alter yeah right so one of the things that i think has shifted a lot um, as a field and as traumatologists as a whole is our understanding of parts of self being an adaptive response yes. not a an exaggerated response not a, a too much response pathological but, illness yeah no but simply an appropriate response to absolutely insane experiences Chaos. yeah and the most you know violent and traumatic things that humans can go through so there's this idea um, with the word alter that evokes this sense of that's not really me that yes. shouldn't actually be me that part shouldn't exist mm-hmm. that it's an imposter in my personality yeah and to me that's the feeling that the word alter suggests yeah it conjures where the word part or part of self or aspect of self part of you part of me or state of self it has this sense to it of no no no, that that is a valid part all of you of you it is an aspect of your personality yeah that's right and it has you know strengths and weaknesses just like any other part of your personality and that's one of the ways that we you know introduce this to clients is hey we don't need to be freaked out by this like this this makes total sense yes and when we look at you know one of the things that we do and one of the things that i like in this article is that he gives some literal worksheets to do as you're kind of Mm -hmm. mapping out uh, the internal system um, of the client And when we do that with clients and we show them, okay, look at all of these aspects of you, all of these parts of you. And if we can just set the the shame aside that has been connected to this, look at how adaptive this is. And sometimes we'll go through the process of saying, what are the strengths of each part? What did they bring, like literally to the table in the case of Fraser's table? What are the assets that they bring to the table that meant that the whole system decided, you know, we should keep this. This is a good idea, right? This this is serving a useful function and purpose in the whole of the personality. And when we step back and we look at that list of strengths that is represented by the all of it, there's sort of this, you know, wonderful moment. It's so robust. Oh, this is all me yes and what would it be like if i lived with access to all of the strengths of all parts of me at all times yeah that really really shifts it for people yeah because there is this internalized belief that not all of me is acceptable right so i have to silo mm-hmm. myself and yes. banish or trap mm-hmm. other parts of myself yeah yeah caleb you look like you're having a thought <laughs> i'm having lots of thoughts <laughs> Many of them. um but i'm wondering if we want to go ahead and venture into the rest and just go kind of section by section on how yeah. it introduces it and then yeah. the yeah. different techniques that he well, uses. I think the altar is a great way to get into it mm-hmm. because essentially he wanted to develop a framework for initiating contact with the mm-hmm. full representation of the person. Yeah. 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 So there, there's kind of an initial uh, paraphrase that I have that kind of sets it up well. And he makes the case this way, guided imagery is an effective method for opening dissociative channels mm-hmm. and clearing dissociative barriers. 
And so it was based on this hypothesis. Okay? Yeah. It was At this point, it was basically a hypothesis that he developed these very specific techniques of using guided imagery in order to open those channels and clear the barriers that kept those channels from uh, being fully experienced and integrated into the autobiographical self yes. of the client. Yes. Um, and so it was kind of from that hypothesis that he began to uh, create these, yeah, this kind of series of techniques that yes. he found uh, profoundly helpful. And just for the listener, the channels aspect is lines of communication or direct connection. Or neurological pathways. Yes. Like literally yes. The, the, in neuron, the, brain. Yeah, yeah. the neuron connection pathways. Yeah. Where and that is the connection that we're making yes. with the neurobiology. Yes. Um, the, well, what, not we're making, but the, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. research has said that's yes. what actually that is. Yeah. And that's what we're adding to Fraser now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the pathway that he was seeking to connect and, and is the access to that disassociated part. Yes. Um, and then the barriers are the reasons why that dissociation had to happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. 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 So I'm curious how in depth do you guys want to go in the description of Fraser's family table and how he does this? Because I have some nuancing that I would love to do on his specific script. Well, if you'd like to do nuancing, that assumes that everyone knows what the basics are. So I think then we need to do basics <laughs> yeah. first. But I think yeah. we can we'll talk about it and when mm-hmm. you you want a nuance, go ahead and nuance. Okay, that Heck sounds yeah. good. That's so great. would would one of you I'll hold the nuancing and sort of the the evolution that has yeah. happened. So I, yeah. And then somebody can kind of describe the the script yeah. that we go so through. So if we're wanting to establish that connection and address the barriers, if that's the goal, then what Fraser did was develop this protocol essentially. Mhm. Of, and I love the language he, he uses, which is that by asking them to describe their, their internal representation, uh, so you know, coming to an awareness in your mind of the various parts of yourself, and you can use all kinds of different imagery to do this. He uses guided imagery, uh, mainly that's an MD background with hypnotics and things yes. like that. So, But anyway, you can do it however you like, but that through that creation of the scene of encountering those parts you are establishing a verbal bridge between the inner visualization and yourself as the therapist. Mm-hmm. I really liked that. The bridge. That phrase, the, the, yeah, I underlined that as well like crazy. The the verbal bridge. Yes. That is a great understanding of guided imagery in this yeah. context. And one of the ways Fraser would do it is he would have the person, uh, you know, just come to a calm, almost meditative state mm-hmm. and imagine um, a, a scenery, whether it be, you know, in a meadow or whatever however you want to get into it well he specifically starts with a table yes like he is very very strict in his language he um specifically recommends an oval yes table not a square no not a, not circle. a rectangle mm-hmm. yes and there there is very good reason no for that because, edges yeah a lot of the people that he was working with because they were yeah. dealing with people on the extreme end of the spectrum ritualistic abuse ritualistic and... satanic abuse and so tables were a thing yes mm-hmm. um so that was very deliberately chosen and so in his script he recommends a conference room with a door with a yeah. large oval conference table and a screen on one of the walls yeah like that's how specific mm-hmm. he gets right and that's developed throughout the protocol mm-hmm. uh yeah. all of those parts of the thing yeah. uh, and he'll give those narrative descriptions of it yeah um but then he will invite them to uh create or or place a table in that setting at which all of the parts can come. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways he invites that is saying, you know, there are a number of chairs around the table. 
and just let the person uh, come to the number of chairs, which he says could be a representation of how many parts there are. Mm -hmm. Also pay attention to if any parts do come to the table, what parts don't come to the table, because that could be communicative of some greater dissonance within the system that says these parts are are, are afraid of you, these parts are not afraid of you, these parts are afraid of you, but they're going to come talk to you. Yeah. And that's where like the very creative aspect of the therapist being open and curious in yeah, these to whatever guided unfolds. moments, because even suggests like, we'll have them turn to the door yeah. Mm-hmm. in yeah. the room yeah. and who's standing there, but won't come in. Yeah. Yes. And do we need to say, you're welcome? Yeah. Do yeah. You, I need to introduce myself as a therapist first for them yeah. to feel comfortable? Yeah. It, and it, it sounds so creative. So, Caleb, so too, because you mentioned this before we started recording that when you talk this way, sometimes other clinicians will just kind of like look at you puzzled yeah so i'm curious how you describe why you're doing this what intention you have with this well yeah and i'm so glad you brought that up because this is my thought when you were talking about the introduction yeah because when i first started doing this i'll be honest my observing self was just anxious yeah just Mm -hmm. like the part of you that asked what are you doing how is this gonna work i don't I'm kind of like worried about it. I knew it for myself and that it worked so good for my own um, mm-hmm. understanding yeah, of organization I was. of yeah, mind. Yeah. That I just believed in it. And so I was like, oh, this is going to work for somebody else if it works for me. And, but one thing that I've come to really lean on is this idea where when I'm introducing it, I say, we've probably talked about some of these parts. Yeah. I want to know every part of you. Yeah. Because I care about every part. Yes. Whatever the parts need, I care to be a person who hears them and wants them to feel like they're welcome. Yeah. And I bet there's a part of you that hasn't felt welcome. Yeah, or a few parts that maybe are skeptical of me and my intentions here, and you have every right to be. Yeah, and I I loop back to that. Yeah, constantly. That anchor of uh, relational safety that says, like, this isn't just some kooky exercise in which we're going to, like, talk in a in a different way just for the novelty of the experience <laughs> right but no i really want to get to know you and this is a way in which i get to know you yeah that's right and it it's very deep in that moment and so i i'd say clinicians lean on that yes a lot. yeah i think you know my recommendation to clinicians that you know i teach this to because it's a big part of what we do here at bhc and what I have found is that the best way to get somebody over the anxiety hurdle <laughs> of as, what am I saying? Yeah. Of, you want me to do what? Um, is to just experience it yes. personally. Yes. And when you, that's how I was introduced to it. I was at a Andrea conference and somebody at the front of the room said, close your eyes and let's do this thing together. Ah. I actually don't recommend that. That was yeah. a little alarming. I needed therapy afterwards. Yeah, because it was for you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. First time you met the parts. <laughs> that's yeah. what it's like, whoa, yeah. there's a lot going on in there. Yeah. And why um, are they dressed? Yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly. And what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so that that is a, a caution about doing this kind of work. And I really like what you're saying, Caleb, because there's this uh, sense of easing people into it Mm -hmm. and that is one of the nuances that i wanted to bring to this which is when you have somebody that is presenting as did that has a cognitive awareness of their uh diagnosis when you introduce this idea they're going to go well that makes sense because that's the whole reason i'm in therapy it says on the paper that i have multiple personalities so of course we're going to talk about that where it's trickier is when you have people that do not have that diagnosis yeah but dissociation is still a very integral part of their presentation. Which, it, as we echoed back to if, the first part of this yes. this episode, it's it is remarkably everybody. common. Yes. yes. Um, so 
in that context, you know, what Caleb is saying about, you know, slowly kind of sprinkling in this language of, yeah. uh, you know, talking about parts of self and talking yeah. about having a relationship with yourself and, you know, the, the part of you that went through that or the you that you were when you were a little kid versus the you that you are today, just little bits of language like that so that by the time we get to actually introducing this technique, they're more comfortable yeah. talking not as and much thinking like, this way. What? Yeah. And it's I, not culture shock. Yeah, yeah, and I use like Inside Out, the movie, mm -hmm. like crazy. It's been oh, yeah. hugely helpful yeah, to our it's profession. So amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. So I'll use that just yeah. left and right if, yeah. if people mm -hmm. seem to be having a hard time understanding. Mm -hmm. But I also self reference through parts language yes. a lot yeah. in therapy. Oh, yeah. You know, there's of a part, this part of, of me. me. Yeah. I just get that right out of the gate mm -hmm. of yeah. this part of me is experiencing this this way, or part of me is wondering this, just to get that language up front. Yes. So it's, yeah. it, I'm easing people into it from the moment right. I meet them. Right, and that, and that is really what we recommend. And because this is a modality that we use all the time, yes. and it's kind of woven into everything we do in the way that we conceptualize our work, that feels really natural to us. Yeah. But at the beginning, you know, what we recommend is just kind of slowly begin experimenting with this idea of sprinkling in this language. And um, if you have clients that are very cognitive, yeah. It doesn't mean that they're not a good fit for this, but what it does require is that we have some basic understanding of how ego state work in this particular kind of therapy is us anthropomorphizing their nervous system so that we can work directly with where the memories are actually held in their nervous system, in their brainstem. And I will literally say that to clients. I know this feels weird. I know it feels like we're talking about, you know, different versions of you as if there's tiny people inside your head. That's not what we're talking about. This is just a really convenient way of putting handles on something that is traditionally pretty hard to interact with in a direct way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It creates that bridge. You know, it's yes. really hard to get across the river. This verbal bridge. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is a bridge that helps us traverse that mm -hmm. together. Yeah. And so I will introduce it that way to clients to help them yes. get more comfortable with it yes. as well. Yeah. I often use it with emotions. Like, Oh, absolutely. If, you're really, if you really pay attention to how we just generally talk about emotions, and how we typically feel more than one. Yeah. Conflicting given, feelings. Yeah. yeah. Um, how can you make sense yeah. of that? So mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, so a part of you feels this and a part of you feels yeah. that. I have this thing that I do with people. Uh, they'll say something like, I don't know. This phrase, I don't know. And I always show a really curious face to that. And I'll say, you know, I don't actually believe I don't know is a real thing. I actually think it means that there's multiple feelings inside and you can't tell what the actual message is that you need to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I would bet that that means that people expect you to have one answer when really you have a spectrum of mm -hmm. answers. Yeah. So I don't really think I don't know is a thing. Yeah. The so, pressure to know for sure. Yeah. What if you just I can't gave me, answer yeah. with ambivalence. Right. Yeah. So what if you just gave me the full spectrum mm -hmm. and they have to use <laughs> this parts language? Yeah. Well, I guess a part of me feels like this and a part. Okay. Now we've okay. got the spectrum yeah. working yeah. and I can see, I appreciate that nuance that's there in these seemingly contradictory feelings. Mm -hmm. Part of me is afraid of you, but part of me wants to leave. Part of me wants to uh, continue working because I trust you, but part of me really doesn't trust you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we won't say that. We'll just say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had a really beautiful lived example of that, which you got totally busted for 
using that phrase, I don't know, isn't a real thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a mother, <laughs> we uh, do co-therapy with a mother-daughter um, unit, and uh, the mother has apparently been using Bridger's line of, that's not a real thing. <laughs> Every uh, time the daughter says, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> it's fine. Bridger says that's not real. <laughs> yeah, that's the catchphrase. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was really useful in our therapeutic alliance, I'm yeah. pretty sure. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> cool. So a part of you feels uh-huh. angry, uh-huh. and a part of you feels like you don't want to deal with that. That's right, right. yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay, got that's it, got it, got it. Yeah. yeah. So sorry, Caleb, I interrupted you. Um I, I don't remember what I was saying. Dang it. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I hope it to. comes back. Nothing. It was in when no. somebody is presenting with an I don't know, which is what led me to that. I think I was just talking about tying it to emotions and mm-hmm. sprinkling that in that language early on. Yeah. So then when we start the mapping process, they're I've been talking about that, and they've probably adapted that language oh, already. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, yeah. So now what I'm doing is I'm clumping. I like clumping. Like these common experiences of emotions yeah. with these parts that yeah. now take on sensed experience, yeah. imaged experience, their behavioral, yeah. and their and their manifestation in the mind. Yes. With the boardroom scene or the, the right. s- stage scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're connecting a lot of different parts of their state yes now after we've kind of primed them with the emotions yeah that's right so i'm i'm really curious i'm gonna ask you guys a question just because this is something that i get asked a lot um by therapists as i'm teaching this which is what do you do if you take people through this exercise and no part of self shows up they're just sitting in the room alone yeah so here's my question has this ever happened to you well, Frazier addresses it, which is interesting. It is. Yeah. This has literally never happened to me where no part shows up. Caleb? Well, I was going to say, because one of the things he suggests is that you start with a relaxation imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is just a primer to see how the system of the client uses is able to identify imagery yes. in their mental yeah. sphere. Yeah, yes. that is true. Now, there is actually a diagnosis called aphantasia. Yes. In which you you don't have different parts of your sensed memories. So I actually have a kid who, when I use this, he's 13. When I like do sort of guided imagery, he'll just like go blank. Like there, he doesn't see anything. Yeah. yeah. There's no pictures in yeah. his head. Yeah. So what I've done is oh, I've, I have a six by eight foot whiteboard Heck on my yeah. wall. And so he can draw it. Wow. Because the image is out there, yeah. and it doesn't have to be intrapsychically uh, presented. So, um, yeah, and that is a solution to yes. this. Well, nothing came up. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe your mind just doesn't have that ability to sort of produce yeah. that on its own. So let's put it we, out there. Yeah. Externalize it. Externalize and it. You and you can do the same thing thing with writing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But Mel, to your question, for me. I've had people that were initially resistant mm-hmm. uh, to it because of a very dismissive presentation. And mm-hmm. these are my very left brain dominant dismissive attachment yeah. style orientations yeah. that Excellent. they just can't connect with the idea that I want to know parts of them. Mm. Well, and maybe in the natural resistance of, am I open to knowing these parts? Exactly. Of me? And yeah. that's where we shift the language. But then yeah. along the way of discovering why it's hard for them, we're naming parts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so the job still gets done. Yes. I will say that there is great variety in how oh, the yes. the system itself 
will represent this? Well, this is that's interesting because there's such a uh, vast conversation within ego state Mm -hmm. uh, to maybe assume pre-existing parts. Oh, yeah. Now that's a whole different conversation. Yes. Yes. So if you guys know about internal family systems, that is a very structured modality that you know, took the the basic idea of ego state work that Fraser started and turned it into a very kind of formalized, formalized yes. and uh, structured um, modality. And part of what it does and the reason why, you know, at our agency we choose not to use it is because it pre-names yes. and pre-prescribes yes, yes. Yeah, pre-prescribes certain roles that will be present in every system. Which may be true and often they are, but I just don't like the rigidity the rigidity yeah Yeah. the rigid um pairing that must take place we're looking for this exiled part we're looking for this manager part we're looking for this firefighter Firefighter. part yeah yeah i just don't yeah to me get into that but and i mean that some people do and do good work with it yeah and that speaks to i well and i think i've said this elsewhere when we've recorded there is a specific situation where i think that ifs is really well suited which is when you're working with a team of therapists and particularly in a large group setting this is really common in like an eating disorder clinic where the clients are interacting with each other regularly and doing group therapy regularly and having this common language that all clients and therapists share to identify and work with parts of self can be really really beneficial because i can't keep track of 14 clients different parts of self if they have unique names that gets very very complicated Um, what i suggest in those situations is that we simply educate the client on here's the categories that are usually present but your specific firefighter could have a slightly unique presentation Mm -hmm. and in your individual therapy we can refer to it in a more personalized way um now i don't find it necessary to give clients those categories because what ends up being the most therapeutic is part of the self-discovery the natural emergent process of them actually feeling that their nervous system is showing them rather than them imagining it and coming up with it on their own this is the most profound and close to universal experience that people have with ego state work is at first they think oh well i'm gonna have to like come up with this like yeah. I'm, I'm writing um, a creative play yeah, or some type right of fantasy now. novel. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I'm gonna have to choose. And you know what I say to them is, no, no, no. We're gonna sit back and be observers. We are the Watch audience. Yeah, yeah, we're the audience to your nervous system in this process. And they very rarely expect it to happen yeah. as seamlessly as it does. And almost always, there's sort of this moment of shock. Yeah. When the parts show up, it's yeah. like, it's what like, the, well, you know, they're here. I'm like, well, I know we invited them. Yeah. <laughs> like you literally said, come on in here. And, you know, what, what did we expect? And, you know, what the surprise is, is, oh my gosh, my, there's things happening behind the scenes. And by behind the scenes, we mean not in my prefrontal cor- cortex and cognitive awareness yeah. that has been animating me and present with me this whole time. Yeah. And it just sort of suddenly emerges in this really so profound beautiful. way yeah and it can be scary it can be quite alarming yeah. and so you know one of the things that um i think fraser does an excellent job with and his descriptions of both the dissociative table imagery technique along with some of the other techniques that he describes is uh, he does a very good job of pacing oh, of yes. of making sure that we do this in a way that is not going to be overwhelming to the client dragging them through it and and creates this really great sense of 
order and internal control that we're installing into the system at the same time that we're discovering the truth of what the trauma did to their personality we are also installing into it this adaptive ability to work in this really um safe way the safe contained thoughtful nurturing way internally and so we are creating that skill in them as we're discovering what's going on which is one of the one of the huge bonuses of doing this kind of work Mm -hmm. so i want to make sure that we get through all of the techniques because we've kind of done (laughs) well we've done kind of an ongoing nuancing of the techniques and i really want to ground us into the specifics of what fraser's saying um, because it provides a good foundation for in the future how we will and if we don't get to center ego state i'm gonna freak out (laughs) okay yes so let's go go ahead so we've already kind of mentioned it fraser talks about um, the relaxation technique, mm-hmm. imagine a, a calm, safe place. Yeah. Um, tell me what it's like. What do you see, feel, hear? Yeah, all your sensory yeah. input. Mm-hmm. And what the therapist is doing is just making sure that the system has the capability to engage in a sort of guided imagery. Yeah, that's right. Has that perceptual and base. Entering in with a, with a calm and neutral affect yeah. state at the beginning. Yeah. 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 And then he does what we've kind of already touched on where he says, okay, now I want to shift the scene. Yeah. We're going to go to a boardroom or... You know, he also later nuances it with yes. a, like a play, like mm-hmm. a theater stage yes. with a spotlight or something. So yeah, uh, let's go to a boardroom with an oval table Yeah, and let's invite all of the altars, the parts mm. into the room and you kind of do this sort of noticing who's there, who's not. Right. Um, and that's kind of what we talked about. He then sort of suggests that the therapist shifts it and yeah. says, now that the group is here, we're going to start a dialogue. Yes. And this is kind of where he goes into then a series of um, kind of techniques that are organized, I think, around helping the parts at times feel safe to talk. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Organizing. Communicate with yeah. one another. Yeah. yeah. Giving context to who's talking. Yeah. Um, helping them to sort of, in a way, get to a place where they're understanding yeah. their internal he, makeup. I love how he goes into the spotlight technique first. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a way of essentially identifying what parts have been running the show and what parts have not been, what parts are still yet to come to the table, whatever it is. And he might nuance it to give like a microphone instead of a spotlight or something mm-hmm. like that, depending on the orientation of the drama or something like that. But uh, the, the main point is to give some type of representation in the imagery that mm-hmm. one part is speaking at a time. We're already in establishing this type of uh, group norms or expectations mm-hmm. of how we're going Order. to start interacting. Yeah. Yes, Order exactly. Order and safety within yeah. the system. Yes, and this also allows you to start noticing who's not talking, mm-hmm. who is refusing to talk, mm-hmm. who's talking a lot, um, and why might that be. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to just stay as the therapist in this really curious space of you know who wants to share what with me and why. Yeah. Are they are they the holders of memories that are other parts' memories? And that kind of gets into that center, uh, the center ego state. But the spotlight technique is centered around the idea of helping the parts feel seen and yeah. invited to mm-hmm. speak yeah. if they'd like. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I do with this spotlight, because he says that spotlight shining on the altar who has executive control of the body. Yeah. And one of the things I'll do is kind of once we have the stage set, I'm thinking particularly of the my guy who has them written on the whiteboard. Yeah. What I did was then say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point 
and have like this almost like a someone's calling them forward. I'm going to yes. point to them. Cue. And I just want almost. to, yeah, yeah, cueing. And I want you to um, see if you can notice how that part oh, that's beautiful. activates your body. Yeah. And so then there What's were the some feeling? where it was like, I have no idea really how that part feels, yes. but I know it's there. Yeah. And then there's others where it's like, oh man, like mm-hmm. when I got to anger, yeah, dude, he, up. he knew what that felt like and he yeah. was very familiar. Yeah. And even just establishing, I love just pointing that out, the, the shifting that you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're teaching them titration, you're teaching them an awareness of the different affective states that they have yeah, internalized, the pendulation. The exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. So a nuance that I will add is that in, in real practice with DID presentations, you will have aspects of self, parts of self that never gain executive control of the body. Yes. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that they're, we skip them. Yeah. yeah. They they're are still not no active or meaningful yeah. or yeah. present. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's in fact, I would say that it's almost even more important yeah. to directly engage with those parts. Their story is yeah. very important mm-hmm. to that system and invite them forward. And he moves on from the, the spotlight light technique into something that's really helpful with those parts that are what we would call more, uh, background or uh, traditionally we call them shadow parts. Yeah, they're banished. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah the exile parts, yeah. shadow parts, etc. And it is really fascinating, you guys, when you get into these systems, that is exactly what it is. Yes. Like when you when you have them imagine these parts, it's like, yeah. you know, this on, imagery of yeah. They're they're, you know, in a compound, right? All the parts live in this house together. The exiled parts, like I, I worked with one particular system where it was a large pink Victorian house. Mm. All parts of self had their own room and there was one part that was exiled. It was an exiled shadow part. Um, and, uh, it was imaged as a parrot and, uh, was not allowed in the compound. Like literally there Mm. was gates (laughs) and he, this was a female client. So it was a, an opposite gendered part represented. I know all of that is, and this is out of the scope of this particular conversation. But, um, what is relevant is that working with those parts, we did not have a verbal bridge. Yeah. to that part for a very, very long time. So what Frazier um, explains as the middleman technique, yes, I love it. which is setting up a another kind of a bridge. representative. Yeah. And so it's basically exactly what you think of when you think of a middleman, where you direct and guide the client to identify a part of them, um, you know, a person that is at the table that is willing to communicate to see if they could communicate with that exiled part and relay it back to serve as the middleman between those silent parts. Now, in my experience with exiled and shadow parts, that can be a big ask yeah. because mm-hmm. there's a reason why yes. those parts are shadowed or exiled. Do and you, so, I'm curious, do you ever go into, before you introduce the middleman, do, mm-hmm. you, do you ask anything about that part's story? No. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a reason why I scream no at you. <laughs> yeah. Because I do. Yeah. Which is interesting. So yes. I'm, I'm very yeah. curious. So the reason why I don't is because the reason for the exiling is usually so extreme and you can um, accidentally create flooding of the system because oh, yeah, when, you know, when we're going back to the neurobiology here, right? So anytime we speak to a part of self, we are activating the, the affective circuitry that is housing the memory, that is yeah. housing the story of that part. Yeah. And so if I am not ready to or if I don't feel like between me and the client we have the the uh, rapport the safety the experience together to really hold that experience well yeah. contained 
I don't want to activate any of that because mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to bubble up in that system. Yeah. So you know, working with shadow parts is down the road and it's after there are some established safety within the yeah. system and we have some practice at navigating big affect shifts and big mm-hmm. affect states. Yeah. And they have an internalized awareness that, you know, what we were talking about, when I feel it, I can release it. Yeah. I need them to know that. Yeah. And they need to feel and have experienced the truth of that because if I'm going to ask them to walk into an activation of a part of self that holds something that was so bad, it had to be exiled out yes. of the compound. Yes, right? reason for separateness. He yes, into that. Yeah. yeah, reason for separateness, you know, put into animal form and opposite yes. gender form. I'm That's how far it. away this part yeah. had to be, right? And so to, to bring that part back... Um, there has to be a sense of yes. safety. And well, and what I'm saying is, do you ask the other parts of their awareness of that part? Um, yes. Now that I would, and that so is what I'm talking about. Yeah, so I don't ever inter- interact with the shadow part unless they're right. ready to come forward. Right. So the language around that would be that you know, as as you as the therapist, because yeah. that's the other thing about this. You as a therapist, you're like in it with them. Oh yeah. Um, and I did want to mention specifically about this middleman technique. In my experience, there are a lot of situations where we as a therapist serve as a middleman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that needs to be a possibility that's on yeah. the table. I never offer that first for obvious reasons. I'm going to prefer to keep the communication yeah. in-house But as if there's nobody that would want to or yeah. feels capable to. Yeah, so really easy example of this that is not too activating to listen to. Um, most uh, real DID presentations, like you know, end of the spectrum, they're going to have an aspect of self that is a baby, that is mm-hmm. a um, a nonverbal baby. And in that situation, middleman gets a little complicated, right? Yeah. Because they're they're really not able to communicate. So the work with that part is going to be about nurture, care, and remothering, yeah. right? And so when I'm asking the parts um, that are present, hey, who feels capable and prepared of offering this part what it needs? Yeah. Often what we get is a whole lot of crickets yeah. <laughs> and alarmed faces. I don't know. It's a baby. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And and so in that moment, it's very appropriate for us as therapists to say, how would it feel if until you feel ready, I could step in and yes. offer the kind of mothering that that part probably needs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every single time that I have offered that, the reaction is relief because they don't know. That's the whole point. They don't know how to take care of themselves in that space. And so we will have sessions that include me sitting on the couch next to the client who is in a nonverbal baby-like state and we read Dr. Seuss and I mother them for the hour. You know, we get out stuffed animals and I tuck them in and Yes, they have napped in my office and all kinds of things because that affect state is being activated in that moment. And yes. how do you release the fear of a baby? It requires mother yes. or a, a maternal experience. And so in that space, that is us playing the middleman in a really profound and useful way. And then we basically pass the baton to their system as soon as they're ready to take it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that, I have two thoughts. The first one is, what does each state need as a mismatched experience to allow it to be integrated into the whole? Because they've been either exiled or minimized or dismissed or given priority over all the other parts Mm -hmm. because there is a sort of like adaptability to it. And by unlocking that state through talking to it and, and, and engaging with it, what does each state need 
as a mismatched experience to feel comfortable to then open up and be in a, yeah. in an odd way. What we're talking about is like, you know, we talk about the nervous system needs to be regulated yeah. and when it's regulated, it can integrate all the other parts mm-hmm. when the That's parts beautiful. of yeah. the interest psychic person structure yeah. structure is regulated. When the state is regulated, it is more pro social with mm-hmm. the other parts open to engaging. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, he describes, um, another technique or kind of it's it's like an adjunctive part of several of these techniques where the parts of self when we have this bridge where we can begin engaging with them even the parts that we're not working with directly they are in observation now because we're all gathered in one space yes which means the three-year-old self the five-year-old self the seven-year-old self is in observation of watching you take care of of and interact with yes Yes. and so they are vicariously benefiting and healing and what often happens is sort of this rushing forward of hey i I have some some of that too yes and by the way when we're you know referring uh to the parts of self that won't come in the room yeah they are often listening they're like right at the door with their ear pressed against it going, what's going on in there? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about often. I think it's always. Yeah. That's just been yeah. my experience. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, kind of relying on that and anticipating that means that we can construct our interactions with the client to benefit the whole system yeah. and know that when I am demonstrating um, adaptive parenting to this one part, all of those other little parts are observing that and vicariously experiencing that. And next time we come in, they may suddenly show up. Yeah, that's right. So one of the the nuances to this is that every time we go in and we do some kind of work in the system, the next time we come in, we want to allow for an update because there might have been some restructuring and some shifting. And there might be parts that were not in the room that now want to come in. Mm-hmm. There might be parts that are like, hey, I feel great. I don't need to be yeah. here for this meeting. Yeah, right? I'm good. So, so allowing for um, change within the system through this imagery is a really useful way of integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and and i just like to point out like what the reason for the middleman technique and some of these other techniques is on like a spectrum from ex- excitatory and inhibition in yeah. the brain yeah. you think of like a newton's cradle yeah yeah where it's yeah. going to swing from one side to the other you don't want to do either or where it's either all inhibition or all yes. excitatory yes mm-hmm. and you want to find that middle ground where you're welcoming some excitement from the parts but also yes not throwing the scale all exactly the way or yes vice versa and you can tell that we have so much to say about this and we're <laughs> so like important. way over an hour okay, right now. So, but... so I do want to hit on the screen technique, but we're going to do it in a really fast way. I'm just going to read a really short explanation of okay. this. Because <laughs> we're, we're going to get to center I know, state we gotta talk about technique. So important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I want to have enough time for that. So um, this is what Fraser says about his screen technique. I decided to add a movie screen or a TV monitor in the room with the dissociative table. The altars, as he references them, could now project the scene of the abuse memory on the screen, yet be safely sitting at the chair at the dissociative table. While this, somewhat but not always, distances the intensity of the recalled memory, it generally offers adequate emotional connection to be effective without having a difficult ab reaction to manage. Since everyone can see the screen from the table, that memory can be seen by all who are willing to watch. Yeah. They also can see and experience the emotional reaction of the person who is showing or sharing the memory. The suggestion that they have a remote control um, also allows them to stop, start, rewind, or fast forward the scene. So that, in a nutshell, is an explanation of how do you do memory work 
within this technique. Yes. And and so he's inviting a part. Because parts are yeah. holding lots memories. of memories. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Then we've got to start working with those. Yes. At some point. And so that screen technique is a way of really directly working with the memories held by each part. Yeah. yeah. And as he mentioned, helping them manage their flooding and mm-hmm. their, you know, ability to remain regulated enough to continue yeah. processing. Yeah. And even, yeah. you know, that really simple example of giving them a remote control. Yes. Once again, we're doing the memory work, but we're also installing the ability to feel. Regulate uh, affect. Yeah. Yes. yes. And have a sense of mastery yes. over my own memory. Which is when yeah. reconsolidation can happen. Exactly. So, right. so that's, that's the screen technique. Yes, cheese Louise. <laughs> There's so much more on that, but okay. That so, was so good. All right, Caleb, do you want to take center ego state? Yes. Um, oh, uh, why don't or, you take it? Okay. Because you're, you're super excited about it. I am, uh, <laughs> just because, okay, so the concept of the center ego state is that's, and he says sometimes, which I think most of the time, if mm-hmm. not always, but anyway, there is a part of the self that is aware of the entire ego structure. Um, and the histories of the alters or the parts. Um, and the reason I say it's always, and it may just be because of the way that I introduce the, the intervention or the way of talking about these things, but we're essentially going back and learning all of these things. And sometimes what will happen is a, a part will come forward that knows the story of another part mm-hmm. that other parts kind of don't know the story of. Mm-hmm. That can be your ally. Uh, and he calls that the... Uh, the internal healer i forgot the yeah yeah the inner self helper yes inner self helper yes ish i remember that (laughs) um but that to me is such an invaluable part that can come forward Mm -hmm. but i do think it can also add some challenges as well Mm -hmm. because it's entitled to the safekeeping of all of the parts Mm -hmm. a lot of times in my experience and is kind of wanting to go along with our work but also kind of be a little skeptical of mm-hmm. saying, are you going to take care of these parts? Because I've been around right. to take care of them. Right. I know them. Yeah, and he says that uh, this part is often the function of keeping some sense of background continuity of time. Time, yes. And, and is therefore more cognitive. Yes. So yeah. the skepticism is going to come out because they're going to think, well, I've been I've been like organizing able to this organize stuff. this for yeah. some time now and yeah. you're going to come in and say that you know how to do it differently right mm-hmm. and, and that no... i've been mismanaging it mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's like so this subtle slight kinda... it's like yeah accommodating like hey thank you so much for coming um i'm really curious to hear what you know of the space and mm-hmm. if you could show me around mm-hmm. yeah um yeah yeah and he you know in this technique he really speaks about kind of making this part an ally in therapy he even goes so far yes. as to refer to it as a co-therapist yes exactly mm-hmm. which i, I think love is that fascinating yes yeah Yes. Um, and that stance is, you know, a humble stance of, yes. you know, coming to this part uh, with this attitude of we're not suggesting that there was any mismanagement, but simply could we reallocate resources because this is an expensive way of living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that does go a long way to alleviate that. But more than that, I think another piece that is really relevant to this is that we do understand neurobiologically what this um this part of self is about yes it is you know what now neuroscientists would refer to as the autobiographical self Mm -hmm. it is a part of our brain a part of our brain that holds the whole story um our timeline in this really 
um, kind of overarching big picture way and keeps track of our autobiographical uh, sense of self because that's where our personality emerges from. Yeah. So part of the reason why this part of self is going to know the story of all is because this is the birthplace of personality. Like this is where it's coming from. And so every part got their start right here. Yeah. And so that's part of why when you're interacting with this part in a dissociative system, it automatically has this kind of sense of protectiveness over yep. it. And this sense of ownership over it yeah. at the same time. Hey, whoa, what are you doing? Yeah, because it's the birthplace of. Yes. And, you know, it it made the decision in, in a very anthropomorphized way of this is why it has to be this way. Yes. This is why this is the best and most adaptive way. This part needs to be here in order yeah. to play this role for this amount of time, etc. And so when we're stepping into that, this is a very uh, powerful part. Um, but will also present very differently than a lot yes. of other ego state parts. So in, in the world of ego state research, um, it's very normal to delineate between emotional parts and what we call ANPs, apparently normal parts. Yeah. But this, this core center ego state and autobiographical self is separate from those two categories. Yeah. It's like the umbrella that covers all of yes. them. It's like a meta part. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that that is really relevant when we're kind of stepping into that and interacting with that. But I love the way that he describes it yeah. and suggests our th our therapeutic relationship with that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bridger, do you have anything else to add about the center ego? Oh, I need to reference that that thought about uh, this part of self being connected to the autobiographical self comes from a book. Yes. And uh, the author is Damasio. And uh, the, the book. feeling of what happens. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I was You're blanking welcome. for a second. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah. The feeling of what happens, which we highly recommend. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, Caleb, I have so much more on the Sarah Eagle State. But I, I think we're just kind of saying the same thing over and over again that the, the, a person's system and the way that they represent their lived experience is utterly unique to mm -hmm. each individual. And the curiosity that is demanded by the therapist to be a visitor, not a master mm -hmm. or any type of expert Boss. in that space, mm -hmm. but to just be a visitor who is there to learn and is there to get to know and is there to establish relationship with yes. and connection with. So much wild adventure <laughs> is possible when we go into that space that way. Yeah. Um, and I think Frazier started a wonderful conversation. Um, and I, I think there's so much that we can build off of this work and mm -hmm. we have um, both uh, empirically in the literature since 1991 and then also just in our practices because it just in the way that it's unique to each individual, the way a therapist works with it is very individualized as yes. well and the way you start to work with it. So I have a good transition thought. It's going to take us into the last area that we're going to talk about. Okay. So <clears throat> the stance of ourselves as therapist walking in to do this kind of work, especially with a highly dissociated system, there's a phrase of humble confidence. Yeah. So both of those are very essential as the therapist in that situation. The humility is what Bridger's talking about. Of we're not coming in as the boss or the expert, 
but we do have to come in with this kind of confidence of I've been here. I've been here and I'm not afraid to be in here That's with right. you. Yes. Like I'm not even afraid of the mess and yeah. the chaos no. and like yeah. I travel to these places all the time. Yeah, I'm yeah. familiar with the setup, you know, you're not gonna freak me out with yeah. whatever you show me. Like go ahead and show me the skeletons in the I closet. Tell like some I'm of good. my clients I've got a passport. Yes. <laughs> I've traveled a lot. <laughs> this is like, I've traveled a ton. So I know yeah. what's in there. Yeah. Uh, to some degree, but I'm really excited to learn about this new culture. Yes. That's the way, mm-hmm. the way that I get into yeah, it. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's multiple ways of kind of demonstrating that that humility and that confidence to clients. The the science, the neurobiological understanding helps us with the confidence, mm-hmm. um, but that the attitude of humility and the way that we kind of set that up, um, yeah. I think, is just as if not more important than the confidence. But we really need both. So speaking of professional humility, walking into these systems. The biggest and most contentious debate, well, it's kind of over, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> at least I like to think it's kind of over. It's over we to won. Us. <laughs> yes, we won. <laughs> Winner rights history. That's right. That's right. Hey. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I'm going to own that one. Um, it's so, prophetic. Yeah. So that is the debate of when we're working with a dissociated system with multiple parts of self, is the goal of therapy. Oh, man. Integration, meaning the elimination of the parts of self of alters yes basically merging all parts of self into one unified cohesive self personality basically the death of all the others yes and you can probably guess how i feel about this based on the language that i'm using interesting yeah um it used to be thought that that's the, the goal that was the goal because uh Treating, you can't go around having yes. multiple personalities. Treating disease means that you don't have the disease anymore. That's right. And uh, so what we discovered in the treatment of DID is that, well, number one, that didn't work real well. And number two, um, a lot of the parts of self took great exception to murder. <laughs> <laughs> To put surprise, it bluntly, they didn't, they didn't like the idea of their own what are you death. To get rid of me yeah, for? exactly. Um, and particularly hmm. referencing back to that that uh, center self, that ego, um, that is kind of the the hub of them all. There were multiple parts that were really against this idea of like disappearing all of the others because it's like, no, wait, these are like my babies. This yeah. is and this is all us. Yes, they are all part of our autobiography. Yeah. So if you start eliminating then we are not who we are. That's right. And I've lost my identity. Yeah, I've lost my identity. And so, you know, the clients had very little interest in this or, you know, the, the majority of the system had very little interest in this. And it was the antithesis of hubris on the part of the professional. Yes. To say, I know what's best for you. What's best for you is the death of all of these things that I consider symptoms. And I'm going to tell you the right version of you to be. Oh, man. And that's gross. Like that just does Toxic, not. Toxic, yeah. disgusting. Yeah. And so uh, what what Fraser presents is this idea that I want to, you know, kind of spend some time on and then end with is this idea of fusion yes. being the goal of integration. And I love how he phrases it, of the holding of hands. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Standing so in a circle think about, holding hands. Yes. These parts, you know, their reason for separateness is what makes them so special mm-hmm. of why they felt they had to be disintegrated in that yes. way. And so when we're starting to increase communication right away from the beginning of the table, mm-hmm. we are inviting them to share space with one another, yes. which can be such a great uh, and tolerable mm-hmm. experience for the person. You know, this part of myself, I intentionally separated off because when they're together, the dissonance is too great and I'm overwhelmed by shame. I'm overwhelmed mm-hmm. by self-hatred. 
I can't be together. So when Fraser starts talking about this, this moving towards fusion, it is these parts learning to communicate and honor one another. Yes. He has a phrase that is just like so good. It's like, oh, made me feel really good. He said, you can now all think together. Hmm. Oh, man. Yes. Which means. That's the goal. Yes. Which means I am in total co-consciousness all the time with all aspects of myself. Yeah. But it does not require the elimination. Yeah. None are shut away or banished or exiled. We're all here in the room together making decisions together and this is so this is a phrase that i use with did clients when they kind of have that first really beautiful moment of of fusion is we create this mantra of never alone again Mm. never alone again these parts of self never have to be alone again yeah because that is so much of the pain of the dissociated self is that they feel in isolation and uh misunderstood and out of relationship and all of these techniques that he's describing is about bringing in relationship to the yeah. system so that mm-hmm. it actually functions like a unified healthy family that's beautiful and that phrase of you can now all think together or you know the one that i use never alone again it really gets at the the feeling of what uh mm-hmm. healthy fusion is about without yeah. requiring the elimination of any part and i think depending on what clinician is working with this you're going to get a different idea of what's important in this Mm -hmm. but the three of us are just so of like mind that that's exactly what we're wanting is Mm -hmm. the person to feel safe being all of themselves in the presence of another person and so the intersubjective space that's created between the client and the therapist and then all of the client's parts Mm -hmm. is the therapy Mm-hmm. It's what is is happening in the integration of all of those parts in the fusion uh, that all of these things can become a part of who I call me. Yes. Mm-hmm. That to me is the point mm-hmm. of all of this. Mm-hmm. And people are going to disagree with that. I think okay. you're wrong. But uh, <laughs> it's all right to disagree you do, Yes, exactly. And, and those that advocate for an elimination of these altars, um, they have their justifications for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them are really well published, which yeah. is interesting. But um, to me, my takeaway from this article is one that this is just a, kind of a reason for us to just share a lot about what we're passionate about and mm-hmm. the IPNB roots that it has. Uh, all of the connections that it has to our uh, case conceptualization model. It's just so much a part of how we think about um, the makeup of a person's internal structure, their eco structure and how they put together themselves and present themselves and the reasons why. And it, yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as a way of concluding, I want to share kind of a brief little anecdote of how I usually wrap up therapy with somebody that has just gone through an initial experience of fusion yeah. and is trying to understand like, Oh my gosh, what does that mean? And how do I, uh, how do I tell myself a story about this mm. experience? And, um, so you can do this with several different things in my office, because I'm this kind of person, I have a lot of stones and crystals and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it works just as well to use some other things and I'll describe that uh, afterwards. But I have one stone that is, um, it's blue selenite. This is just this pretty blue thing. And it's yeah. perfectly uh, polished into a round ball. So it's mm. just a smooth ball of stone. That's it. And I'll hand it to the client. I'll say, isn't that pretty? I'll say, yeah, it's lovely. And they have no idea where I'm going with this, but they're used to me and my weird antics. And so they go with me. And then I have a, a stone that is a rough cut, totally raw, like mm. straight out of the mine. Um, it's actually from China. It's beautiful. Uh, it's jade. And... 
Um, there's smooth parts and rough parts, but there's multiple facets and faces yeah. to this stone. And I'll hand it to them. They're, and the two stones are about the same size. They're, yeah. you know, uh, like a good sit in the palm of your hand size. And I'll hand it to them and I'll say, which is more beautiful? Mm. And hands down, it's the jade. It's yeah. just fascinating. Because yeah, it's so and multifaceted. Yes, yeah. multifaceted, multifaced. You know, there's different textures and there's so much going on with it. And the blue is lovely. But anybody, any human is going to be drawn to this rough cut natural um, jade. And when they hold it and I say, does it make sense to you that what you were trying to do was smooth yourself over so that you had no rough edges? Yeah. But what we experience today is the beauty of what it means to just let all of you be present with all of your faces yeah, being right. shown at once. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it is the integration of that fusion experience of yeah. all parts of self going, oh my gosh, you want me here. Yes. <laughs> like mm, I, that's okay. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not only am I'm not just being tolerated yeah. as part of the system. Yeah, that's right. I am part of something beautiful and natural yeah. and and mm. irreplaceable, incomparable. Mm. And the, the idea of smoothing over our personality, taking out all of the rough edges is so much of what these people experience in therapy. And when we come along and say, no, we're in the business of appreciating what is, yeah. not of making it into something that isn't um, multifaceted and complicated. Yeah. And that provides a lot of relief. Now, if you don't have, you know, big stones in your office, a diamond ring will do a pretty, pretty similar thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, anybody knows that a multi-faced, multi-faceted uh, diamond is way more sparkly under the light. Yes. Um, and so, you know, using that as the analogy can work as well. But giving them this really felt sense and this mental picture of why it is a beautiful thing, why DID is not a disease. It is, in my personal opinion, Just one of the brilliant evolutions yeah, yeah, of what our nervous system is capable of in the, the worst um, extremes. Hands down, people that develop DID in response to that trauma, this is a personal opinion, fare better in life than people that don't figure out how to dissociate. Yes. Yes. And when I tell that to clients, they raise their eyebrows because this is something that nobody has ever what said a controversial to them. Opinion. Yeah, and I said, Well, there's a whole lot of other things that you could have done. Would you like me to list a few? And after I get through about ten minutes of listing the other options, they kinda see my point. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Um and so I think just shifting our our understanding of what this is and the way that Fraser talks about it in this article is deeply respectful yeah. and deeply um honoring of the science before he even knew what the science was, That's which right. I think is so yeah. cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't do that with a family. You wouldn't no. say, we oh, need to get rid of that to, kid. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem. You can't be a part of the system anymore. <laughs> yeah. You just wouldn't like that. Family therapy wouldn't be very no. good no. that way. Some families would do that. Some but, uh, some systems want to, yeah, which is exactly. why we brought them into the. Right. But exactly. family therapy, therapy is not identifying the healthiest part of the family and saying, just you. Yeah. Let's yeah. keep you yeah. and just get rid of all the yeah. rest. Yeah. You seem like the best part of this system. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else I like can leave. You the best. You cause the Are you the guys least all problems. cool with him just, just being or her being here being and them. just like the rest of you representing you? Yeah. Okay. Cool. cool. See you guys. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. No, not going to work. No. So, um, does anybody have anything left? No, I I have I so much, like, but yeah. I think yeah. probably Hour enough for one go. I think we'll we'll come back to this at many oh, points and it's so integral to our core conceptualization framework so yeah and, yeah. and we'll anytime we talk about a part uh -huh. or a system you can bet that yeah. clinically where where we're tying that in is some form of ego state intervention yes. yeah yeah i would agree with that so uh before we close um we have 
something that we want to invite our listeners to go check out, which is our Patreon. Yeah. Um, our Patreon uh, one has been just such an incredible experience of building community that I don't think we all mm-hmm. really understood what that could be. Yeah. Uh, but we love continuing to see it grow. Um, and we have multiple ways that you can kind of get uh, in touch with us. But one of the ways that we do that is through our Patreon, which is at uh, patreon.com slash beyond healing center. Mm-hmm. And that's just a really cool way for uh, people to donate to us and also mm-hmm. kind of uh, sign up for a different tier of membership where they can get different resources and they can uh, get different access to uh, all, all kinds of videos and worksheets and uh, even some demonstrations. Yes. Yeah, lots of live recordings of full sessions. Of, yeah, that's know, right. Full therapeutic processes from start to finish yeah. so you can hear us live and in action. Yeah, and, and that I- gives you uh, kind of just first access to what's going on at Beyond Healing Center yes. in a lot of ways. And so uh, we're going to have a lot of things that we're kind of addressing specifically to our Patreon uh, following. And so mm-hmm. if you want to kind of help us out as well as get access to some really amazing resources, yeah. we'd love to have you. Uh, kind of on our team so yeah. uh, again that's at patreon.com slash beyond healing center yeah. Um, yeah, yeah i think that's it guys yeah thanks so much for listening and hanging in there for an hour and a half while we talk about one of our favorite topics yes we'll, we'll never apologize for the no. length of the, <laughs> the episode <laughs> so much important stuff to say all right well thank you so much for listening guys and we'll talk to you next time Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.